My title this morning is Removing the Fig Tree of Barren Religion. Mark's Gospel, chapter 11, beginning at verse 12, is the story of the fig tree that Jesus cursed. I think that's a word that we have to use for it. He finds a fig tree when he's hungry and wants to eat from the fig tree, wants to be satisfied. The Creator, wanting to be satisfied with his creation, there's a whole message there. We exist for God's glory and satisfaction, not the other way around only. And there is, though it was the season of, uh, uh, wasn't the season for fruit, there was no fruit. So Jesus cursed the fig tree and said, nobody's ever going to eat fruit from you again. And the fig tree withered. Now what has Jesus got against fig trees? Nothing, but there is a story there. There's a significance to this which we'll explore. So let's read here Mark 11 verse 12 right the way through to verse 25. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have Faith in God. Let me read it as it originally, its original meaning. Have the faith of God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whoever and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. We begin with Peter's question. The morning after, 
They'd witnessed Jesus speaking over the fig tree. They'd witnessed Jesus driving out the religious traders and the reaction of the religious elite of the apostate organized religion of the day, wanting to kill him. Fancy that. The Jewish religious leaders were part of a backslidden, apostate, corrupt religious system of the day. It hadn't always been that way, but it was that way. A corruption of true religion. So much so that they, were, they couldn't even recognize their own Messiah. And then in the morning, Peter walks past with all of this going on. And Mark is signaling for us in recording, uh, for us, what the significance of the withered fig tree. What was the meaning of that miracle? Mark is there ready, but Peter, he, he's, he's on a different plane, in a different planet. There he is, an ordinary guy, and he sees, wow, wow, Lord, look, the tree you cursed has withered. Which was a question. An implied question. And the question, I take it to be this. Whoa! How did you do that? That's Peter all over. Now we know it's a question because the very next thing is Jesus' answer. He answers them. So it was a question. And Jesus takes Peter exactly where he is and tells Peter and all of his disciples and all of us how to work a miracle, how to rise to the level of the miraculous so that if you say to this mountain or this fig tree, go, it will go, it will obey you because you are doing it in the name of Jesus Christ. Very significant. Now, the, the spiritual significance of the miracle comes there, and it's, it's clear. But the first thing Jesus wanted to do was to, was to help Peter understand how he could walk in the miraculous. And, and that was very significant. In fact, much of Jesus' ministry to his disciples is saying, listen, you're going to do this stuff. There's going to come a time when I'll be gone and you will be here. The Spirit will be upon you and you're going to have to do the works that I do. And in fact, more than I do, not greater in quality, but greater in quantity. So this tells us that as people who are Spirit-filled believers, gospel proclaimers, servants of Jesus Christ in this generation and every generation. We are called to work the works of God and we are called at times to speak words over circumstances so that God's kingdom can come. Can I have an amen in the house of God? So here we go. Peter's implied question, how did you do that? Jesus answers because they're in training. He wants them to know how to move in the miraculous. The time would come when it would be their job to proclaim the kingdom with signs and wonders and their job to affect society, their job to speak to the mountains of obstacles standing in the way of the will of God in his kingdom. And they would have to do this. So he's very clear about it. And his answer is this, have the faith of God. For those who are interested, that 
construction, the faith of someone, always means that person's faith. So if you said, the faith of Abraham, it would be Abraham's faith. But here the translators are struggling with this. And so they say, have faith in God. That's as far as they can go. And that's a good place, but it's not far enough. Because Jesus is more than saying, just trust his word. He is saying, act on his word, declare his word, and remove mountains in his name. So the faith of God, what, what is this? One of the reasons why the translators struggle is because we're not used to thinking of God having faith. The emphasis always is we need to have faith. Lord, increase our faith. Lord, strengthen our faith. Yeah, and, and so that's true. But it's not that God needs faith. He has faith. What is faith? Confidence in God's word. You get that? That's a clear thing. Faith is confidence in God's word. And who has more confidence in God's word than God himself? So he says, I want you to come to the place where you have as much confidence in God's word as God has in his own word. And in that place, you can take God's word on your mouth and find God's word in your mouth to be as powerful as God's word in his own mouth. Amen. Yeah. And then he expands on this and he links that to prayer. It's not just walking around and saying, okay, what do I do now? Uh, and doing what you want. Oh, I declare that a gold-striped Mercedes-Benz manifests in my driveway. No, this is not about us demanding things from God. It's about us aligning with God's purpose and his will so acutely, so sharply, that we've come in that place of prayer to know exactly what God's will is and to declare that will, having prayed and having believed. Jesus says, I tell you, whenever you, whatever you pray, and whenever you pray, Believe that you have received it. When? Very simple. When you pray. The world says, when I see it, I believe it. No. God says, when you believe it, you will see it. So when you pray, you pray believing that you have received when you pray. And then he says, it will be yours. It will be manifested. And so this is not just walking around deciding what you'd like to do. This, this is about being so close to God in such communion with God that you know of a depth of surety what God's will is. It's clearly declared in his word and so on. And we, from that place of prayer, we come to the place of faith. And then from that moment onwards, we speak to our mountains and the Greek tense here is speak and keep on speaking. I've done this before and I love it so much I'll do it again. Forgive me if you've already seen this. Often what happens when I speak to my mountains, all they do is speak back to me. 
Hello, hello, oh. Be moved, be moved, be moved. But the kind of speaking we're talking about here is the manifestation of the word of God through your mouth so that whatever you pray, believe you have received it and declare it and it shall be yours. No room for doubt. Now that doesn't mean to say that God is limited by our unbelief in every situation. I remember times in my ministry when I've declared a miracle, even without premeditation, and I have almost dropped down, you know, fainted when I saw it happen. Blood eyes open! Hello? They did? Oh, they did. So God, very often, aren't you glad that God is so gracious? God will sometimes surprise us uh, and work right outside of our puny, weak limitations. But God wants us to come to a place of confidence. Especially when we're dealing with dead religion. I tell you one of the biggest mountains that we face in our own hearts is dead religion. One of the biggest mountains we, 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 we face in our society is dead religion. One of the biggest mountains we face in any expression of organized Christian religion is dead religion. And that's the context. Now, uh, Jesus, of course, is training them in the, in the school of faith, but he knows that the, the biggest obstacle is going to come from religious people and the religious spirit still at work in our lives. And we have to, I'll come to that in, in a moment. Uh, so, he says, get to know this. This is, your, this, this is how you're going to have to move. See, religion confines. It, it, is, it is the focus is on the self, whereas in our relationship with Jesus, the focus is on him. Now, one of the ways that religion robs God's word of its power and plain meaning is tradition. I'm talking about human tradition, human interpretations of Scripture, which actually block the Word of God and rob it of its power. If you want to read more on this, go to Mark's Gospel, chapter 7. And uh, the story goes that Jesus and his disciples were eating food without first washing their hands. And you might say, well, they ought to be told off for not doing that. Didn't your mama ever tell you? Wash your hands before you eat. But this was not washing for cleanliness. This was a ritualistic washing, as if by that way you were making yourself more acceptable to God, and you were saying, ooh, I don't touch all the unclean things around me. And by the way, you are one of those unclean things. So there. It was a ritual. And, and Jesus was criticized because his disciples did not keep the tradition of the elders. And Jesus said, these are human rules. 
And actually, you have a whole system of blocking the Word of God from, of its power and stifling the expression of God in your life because of the human traditions which are designed to keep God away from your life. That's basically what he says. And he uses the example of korban. Do you know what korban is? It, 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 it was a way that you would dedicate things to God. Sounds very, very spiritual. And Jesus shows how they use this human tradition to disobey God and to exempt themselves from the requirements of God for their lives. So the full context is, is that the Bible says, honor your father and mother. In other words, take care of them. And so you've got these kids who grew up and they've got a house in the city and a house in the country. Mama and Papa, they've got nowhere to live. Oh, I wish you could come and live with me. I wish you could have my house in the country or my house in the city. But oh, I'm so sorry. The Holy Spirit laid it on our hearts to declare it Korban, which means dedicated to God. And now you can't live there. In other words, using human traditions to negate the Word of God. I don't know this for a fact, but I suspect that after Mama and Papa passed away, they'd walk past the house and say, I uncorban you. <laughs> and then they would have it for themselves. Now, okay, you say, well, that's very old. It's nothing to do with us. But I, I want to tell you that there are equivalent traditions in church life. And what I have tried to do down through the years is to, is to get those traditions out of you and out of me and out of our spiritual environment so that we become a body of Christ that functions in the way that the New Testament calls us to function. Let me just tell you two things. As this is one of my big topics, I'm, I'm limiting myself, you see, because I could speak about this for a long time. But just... just Bear with me and, and listen up. As I, as I talk to you about two things where human traditions is making the church very ineffective. One is traditions surrounding what we call the church. The Bible word for this is ecclesia, which means those who are gathered to Christ and gathered to one another 24-7, seven days a week. It's a permanent relationship. And yet the word church, if you go to the dictionary, I guarantee the first meaning of the word church in the dictionary, it's not a biblical meaning, is a place of public Christian worship. And that's how we use the term. And so we start teaching and we say, no, no, the church is not the building. Amen? And we draw a distinction between the Old Testament temple where God did presence himself, where you had to go to in order to meet with God, but at the cross, 
when Jesus died, he tore the veil from top to bottom and it was God saying, you're not going to confine me here. I'm out of here. And when the Spirit came, God dwelt not in a temple made with hands, but in his people who are individually and collectively the temple of God. Amen and amen. Yeah, give God praise. So I know that our language uh, betrays us because we, we, we use the language such as this. Oh, are you going to church on Sunday? Yes. Which service? Don't know. Depends who's speaking. <laughs> now that's not the point. The point is you don't go to church. You have never been to church in your whole life. You are the church. You get the difference? Now we gather together in buildings and the most natural thing that we can do as ecclesia, those gathered to Jesus and to one another, is physically to assemble. And the Bible says, don't neglect the assembling of yourselves together. And even in the cell groups, which are opportunities to assemble, not on a Sunday, to give us the expression of church in our homes, our families, our places of work throughout the week. I even hear people saying, oh, are you going to sell on Thursday night? I like to say, no, you don't go to sell. You are a sell. This is the relationship that you have 24-7. And you say, well, I can't gather with my cell members 24-7. Well, maybe not, but you can do it daily through the medium of what we have at our disposal, such things as social media. Our whole point about gathering in cells is that we are meeting in close proximity to one another. And, and, and still, I mean, the women have been having a, a rolling prayer meeting at 6 a.m. And they all gather together every morning. How? FaceTime! It's amazing. So they've got lots of ways of expressing this. So the idea that church is a building or church is what happens in a building is very dangerous. So if we think church is a meeting, when the meeting's over, church is over. You get it? That's disastrous. That breeds Sunday Christianity. No, no, no. When the service ends, the true service begins. The meeting place is the learning place for the marketplace. Your occupation is the location of your true vocation to be church 24 hours a day wherever God puts you. Now the cell structure gives you a structure by which to do it. But that's a, a, that is a, a tradition. Traditional church needs to be reshaped and reformed into biblical church. And the other word, just one other word, then I'm done with this point. Diakonia is the word for service or ministry. Ecclesia, we get it from ecclesiastical, we know it in English. Uh, we know diaconia, deacon, those who, are, who serve in the church. So, not worried about 
confusing you with the Greek, we have it in English. So diakonia is ministry. And, and if we've understood, misunderstood what church is, we've certainly misunderstood what ministry is because we have ministers who do that. The ministers, the ordained ministers, those who are allowed to have reverend in front of uh, their name. Those are the ministers and we pay them and they do the job and we sit and watch Maybe we pray for them, and sometimes we pay for them, but we don't do it. And here's the deal. We will support you as long as you do the work, and from Monday to Saturday, we do our own thing, and that's how it works. Now, that's a very cynical way of putting it, and maybe exaggerated, but it does make a point. There are no special ordained ministers in the body of Christ who've been given a power and a relationship with God that is not also available to every minister of Jesus Christ, every minister of the gospel. And I'm looking at several hundred of them in front of me today. We are all ministers. We're all to serve Jesus and the cell vision helps you do that. Don't worry, we train you, we help you. That's our main job. And so this is the negative traditions that work in our religious environment and at times our church environment and at times our denominational environment in different ways and in different respects. However, it's not enough just to address the external issues of, of external religion, the main problem is not our structures, the main problem is our hearts. And why would we want to deal with the fig tree of barren religion in our own hearts? Because it exists. I can preach as much as I like against religion, but I have to deal with it in my own heart. Let me explain to you. What is the fig tree within? Self-reliance. Self-ambition. Putting everything else first and Christ second. Self-righteousness. Trying to establish our own righteousness. And the flip side of that is self-condemnation. Maybe you don't feel, well, I don't go around judging people. You know, I, 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 just, I just know I'm not worthy. I don't deserve anything. And actually, I struggle with self-condemnation. That's religion. <laughs> Condemnation is about religion. Righteousness is about Jesus. And so if we try to justify ourselves before God, we're going to be down on ourselves. We'll have, have a, a, a spirit of self-pity God says, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poverty of spirit means I've got nothing that I can offer God to impress him or to convince him that I'm worthy of him. Now the opposite of that is self-pity. There's a difference between true brokenness and self-loathing. This is one of the things I, I, I want to clarify for you. There is a brokenness that we must be healed of because our wholeness is found in Christ and there is a brokenness that we must continue to pursue because our wholeness is found in Christ.
Don't get the two mixed up. Paul speaks about them, distinguishes one as worldly sorrow and the other as godly sorrow. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Worldly sorrow leads to self-preoccupation and puts you in a prison of inability and you will always live frustrated lives feeling that you have failed God. Self-reliance, that's, we're trying to, we're trying to say, God, I'm not as bad as all that. Uh, and, and, and this is so, so important in our lives. The root of religion is the desire to justify yourself before God. And the release from religion is knowing that God declares you righteous and acceptable, not through your works of righteousness, but because of his righteousness that is yours by the blood of Jesus. So we need, we need deliverance from that. And sometimes it, it can sound so spiritual when people are, are being humble. Uh, one of them is, oh, woe is me. It would be a bit like that. Excuse the drama, but you know, it's getting late, so I want to keep your attention. <laughs> I go back to the story of Wynne Lewis, who was, he was, I tell you what, I'm a nice man compared to this man. He spoke it as it was. He was amazing and terrifying at the same time. So there was a spate at that period. We've seen them all over the last 30, 40 years. All these little things come and go. And this was, oh, I'm so unworthy. Oh, oh woe is me. Oh, woe is me. And there was a woe is me person in the church. Now, this is a long time ago. And even those who were around at that particular time, cousins of Noah, probably, you wouldn't identify this person stroke persons. I'm deliberately not giving names to protect the guilty. Anyway, there was this woe is me. Oh, woe is me. Oh, woe is me. And Wynne Lewis said, what's the matter with you? She said, I'm undone. Oh, you're always undone. Time you did yourself up again. And he walked off. That was his inner healing ministry. And he had a point. Put this another way, not just from Isaiah 6, where there is a place where we, where we recognize that we are totally unworthy in the presence of God, but we are healed straight away. The cross, the blood of Jesus, purges us from sin. And we can walk in confidence, not self-confidence, but confidence in Christ. That's the healing we need. Now, another uh, part of Scripture is in Romans chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul says something like this, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Wow, strong words. Is, he, is this self-loathing? No. It is the place of brokenness which is necessary for wholeness. What brokenness is he talking about? He recognizes that there's something in him that is so corrupt that the more he tries to please God, the more he displeases God. And basically he's saying, I've tried every which way to do this and I can't do it. I am wretched. And then heaven rejoices and says, finally, 
I've got you to the right place. As a, a master scuba diver, dive instructor, and rescue diver, I've had to do my safety and rescue training over and over again. We have various scenarios, and one of them is a drowning person in the middle of the sea, and you have to rescue them. And the person who is pretending to drown, by the time I'd finished, they nearly did drown, but that's another story. So that person has to respond in the way that you would expect a drowning person to respond. And first thing a drowning person, person does, they're panicking and they will grab hold of you in such a way as you both go down. So one of the ways of doing it is by waiting for that person to be absolutely exhausted and the, the, the last breath you rescue them because they've got no strength to resist you. But there are actually other techniques which are more humane. And that is swimming under them, flicking them around, so you're behind them, so they cannot actually uh, resist you. But either way, you have to render them helpless. Because when they try to help themselves, it gets worse. That's the brokenness that we need before God. God, I can't do it. And Paul says, who is going to rescue me? And then the next verse is, I thank God by Jesus Christ, I'm rescued. So, worldly sorrow leads to self-loathing and a perpetual preoccupation with your own brokenness and weakness, which is just as much sin as anything else. But godly sorrow, godly brokenness, is recognizing I can't, but he can. Jesus says, without me you can do nothing. And Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And you know what happens? When you get to that place, believe me, when you get to that place that you know that you have nothing at all in yourself, that is going to impress God on nothing in your own strength that is going to continually or in any consistent way please him. And you say, I know I can't do it. And you throw yourself on Christ. He heals you. He lifts you up. And he says, I know you can't. And I'm glad you know you can't, but listen to this good news, everybody. You can't, but he can. Give him a big praise. Hallelujah. I'm preaching myself Pentecostal this morning. How wonderful. And then what happens from that? And this is a bit I really want to get to. It'll be a short landing. It won't be a helicopter landing like nine o'clock, but I'll just come in a little bit slower. You know what happens? When you recognize that it's not about you, it's about him. When you recognize he doesn't want you even to try in your own strength. But through repentance and faith, 
transfer all your trust to Christ and you realize the salvation that he's given you, that it's all about him, something happens inside you. It's relief. It's gratitude. And it's a passion for Christ that will dominate your life and define who you are forever. And it's out of that passion that we minister to one another. It's out of that passion that we talk to the lost. And when you talk to those who don't yet know Jesus, it's your story they're telling. And they go through all the things that you know about because you are also are human. But the one difference is this. We have come to an end of ourselves. And we say, we can't. <laughs> we can't. But he can. And that's the difference between dead religion and a living faith.